Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Welcome back, everyone, to A Dose of Dizzy podcast. Um, As always, I'm here with Liz. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We are so excited uh, to bring this topic to you all. Um, It is concussion and vestibular dysfunction. And as you may or may not know, Liz is a rock star with seeing people who got undergone, you know, sports related injuries or just post head injuries in general. And so she sees a lot of these patients um, on a daily basis. And we're really just excited to bring this to you um, in more detail. I could hardly sleep last night, (laughs) although maybe due to my second vaccine. There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, we're going to be reviewing three different papers. Uh, today. First one is Vestibular Imbalance Dysfunction Following Sports-Related Concussion by Jamie Bogle in 2019. The second paper is Objective Vestibular Testing in Children with Dizziness and Balance Complaints Following Sports-Related Concussions by Zoe Imbrotsky in 2015. And finally, we have Peripheral Vestibular Imbalance Function in Athletes with and Without Concussion by Jennifer Christie et al. in 2019. So if you're new to the head injury world, the first thing to understand is what is a concussion. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the term, but CDC technically defines it as a type of traumatic brain injury or TBI that's caused by a bump, a blow, or a jolt to the head, or by a hit to the body that causes the head or the brain to move back, uh, back and forth rapidly. And this sudden movement is really what causes the brain to move around within the skull, and that can create chemical changes in the brain or even damage to the brain cells. So as you can imagine, um, concussion just has a a high burden on the healthcare system with an estimated $12 billion in combined annual medical costs and indirect costs, um, such as even loss of productivity, um, you know, according to the CDC. In addition, um, the prevalence of reported and diagnosed concussions in 2014 was about 2.87 million um, in the United States, including over close to a million um, of those num- of those people being children. Um, one thing to note, these estimates may actually be higher as many concussions do go undiagnosed. And finally, 5% of athletes across all sports um, will experience some type of type of concussion during any given season. Given all of this, um, anybody who experiences any type of head injury is going to have certain symptoms following this. And, and, you know, related to audiology, you know, these symptoms may arise in the form of dizziness. And in the audiology world, there are a number of different complaints that uh, patients will report, such as hearing loss, tinnitus, imbalance, um, difficulty hearing and noise, uh, motion sensitivity, as well as lightheadedness. Of course, uh, in this Dose of Dizzy podcast, we're probably most curious about the dizziness that can come forth after a head injury. Uh, Bogle, in her paper, estimated that um, about 75% of people who have had a head injury report objective vertigo. And um, the presence of vestibular symptoms, and this is actually pretty well studied in the literature, uh, and Bogle references it in her paper, but the presence of vestibular symptoms after a head injury have been associated with prolonged recovery from the, the concussion. And it tends to be about three to four times longer recovery in children and adolescents. In addition, um, the presence of vestibular symptoms can result in 
anxiety, depression, school absences, accommodations, concentration, memory issues, etc. So there's a number of different uh, aspects or effects of that. So looking at all of these studies together, um, a, a range of you know peripheral and, and central vestibular abnormalities have been um, documented in the literature. Um, the most p common peripheral finding that we have come across is BPPV in patients who experience a concussion. Um, it can in adults who post head injury can experience BPPV about five to fifty-seven percent of the time. Slightly lower for range for children. Um, that's been documented as as five to twenty percent. As as far as any other peripheral findings, um, BPPV seems to to be really the only one. Um, it's really unclear if the VOR is directly uh, affected post head injury. VOR abnormalities range from zero to 70% of all documented findings in the literature. So um, effects on the VOR is, is pretty um, not, it's pretty unclear at this point. Uh, in addition, especially with a typical vestibular testing, there are a number of ocular motor abnormalities that have been documented in the literature. Um, I know, for example, Bogle's paper mentioned about 25% of these patients have some sort of abnormality, uh, and she talked a little bit about psychotic or low-gain pursuit, uh, reduced uh, velocity on psychotic testing, and in addition, even some gaze or spontaneous nystagmus that you can see. Um, and another very, very popular ocular motor abnormality is actually in re regards to convergence testing, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but there are some ocular motor abnormalities seen. In addition, um, there are about 50% of patients after a head injury will have some sort of reduced dynamic visual acuity. And this is the testing where uh, they're moving their head, trying to keep clear vision, reading a stimulus. So that seems to be fairly common. Outside of those two, uh, which are pretty typical of a vestibular assessment, uh, Bogle does talk about some central vestibular hypofunctions that can occur depending on the site of the injury, and in addition, multisensory integration issues. And this, this tends to be a common issue with concussion across many different fields, but it's truly just integration of multiple different stimuli, and that can lead for the patient, it can lead for issues with their balance, spatial orientation, or maybe a higher visual dep dependence than they're used to. So beyond all of these uh, diagnostic findings we may see as vestibular audiologists or even just audiologists seeing a patient in the clinic, one of the top questions you're going to receive from your patient is how long is it going to take me to recover and, you know, what's really the timeline for this? Right. That's such an important question and I think it varies um, on a number of different factors that, you know, um, all the way that includes uh, history of, of headaches or migraines, family history of those, history of motion sensitivity, anxiety and depression, history of any attention or learning developmental disabilities, um, as well as a history of previous concussions. So that's going to go, um, that's going to go a lot into, you know, what determines how long somebody will recover. Um, anybody really saying yes to any of these can, can really prolong the recovery um, of concussion. Absolutely. And I, you know, those six prolonged recovery risk factors actually come from the CDC from a breadth of research of what has led to longer recovery. So it's just something to be aware of and maybe counsel the patient on if they have any of those risk factors. Uh, we do know that the window for acute head injury is typically one to two months. 
So uh, that's where really it transitions into a post-concussion syndrome, which is maybe something you've heard of. But uh, athletes tend to be on a quicker recovery timeline, usually getting back to their play within two months. So I'm sure a lot of you out there are wondering, how do we test these patients? And thank goodness we have Liz right here. She sees these patients on a daily basis and is going to walk us through her protocol. For sure. So, you know, this is one of the top questions I get. What's different about your assessment compared to a typical vestibular assessment? And I always start out by saying I do some of the same tests as a typical vestibular assessment. However, I kind of look at it from a different perspective. As you know, we, of course, want to rule out true vestibular weaknesses because that could be something that really changes the physical therapy timeline or maybe technique for that patient. But you may be looking at your test that you do on every vestibular patient a little bit differently for a head injury. So for example, I always use this one as an example, but for CVMPs. So a lot of people do CVMPs on all their dizzy patients. For a head injury patient, yeah, do CVMPs, but maybe you're looking from a different perspective and you start doing threshold screenings, which is maybe not typical of your protocol because you want to rule out superior canal dehiscence, which is common post-head injury. So, you know, you may be able to kind of alter your current protocol to make it work for head injury. There's also about five or six different tests that I do in addition to my typical vestibular assessment for these post-head injuries. So I'll talk you through some of those now. Number one, I perform a different case history. Um, There's so many uh, subjective questionnaires out there to assess people's symptoms after their head injury. One that I use mainly because it's comprehensive but short is the post-concussion concussion symptom scale and I just added a few audiology related questions on there Um, and you may just have a different question asking Um, you know asking about those prolonged risk factors asking about the method of injury etc number two um, there's two different ocular motor evaluations that can you can perform as an audiologist number one is a screener so it's called near point convergence you can look it up online on YouTube anywhere All you need is a popsicle stick or a pen, but you're looking at the ability of the eyes to focus on an object close to the face. uh, And you're really looking for the point at which the patient sees double of the popsicle stick or the pen. And that has been very well documented as an acute post-head injury finding that recovers as they recover from their head injury. So it's a really great tracking mechanism. Another uh, ocular motor evaluation and there's actually normative values just came out this fall and it's micromedical if you have that system they actually just added this module to their system in the fall which is awesome um, but it's something called anti-saccad testing and it's kind of like it sounds it's opposite of saccades so whereas saccades the patient is following the dot around the screen anti-saccades they actually look in the opposite direction of the target and it's a top-down processing test uh, and it it tends to be a lot more sensitive post-head injury. So, Liz, um, out of, I guess, the convergence and anti-saccades, you had mentioned that these are Mm -hmm. mainly used post, you know, during the acute phase. Yes, Um, correct. So out of those two, um, which one have you found to be more most useful? That's hard. Um, Both are useful. (laughs) Convergence Um, is probably more typically abnormal and recovers with the head injury from what I've personally seen. Anti-saccade testing is really difficult. Um, And if the patient has a history of like learning disabilities or attention disabilities, even in childhood, 
it's a hard task. Like even everyone should try it, but it's, it's difficult. So I sometimes put a little bit less weight on that just cause it's a hard task for someone that hasn't had a head injury. Gotcha. Yeah. Good question. Um, a few other things I look at one is balance performance testing, especially if you're seeing athletes. I know I've had the honor of seeing lots of collegiate professional athletes, et cetera. And our typical balance screenings that we perform are just not challenging enough. So sometimes you have to make, uh, throw in a head shake or throw in a visual stimulus, et cetera, to make your balance screening a little bit more difficult. I know uh, one test that's been created is called the cobalt test. It's out of Arizona, but it's a concussion balance test for athletes. And so that seems to have a pretty good uh, sensitivity towards specifically the athletic population. Um, another test that I perform is a dynamic visual acuity test. If you don't do this with most of your vestibular patients, it can be really sensitive post head injury because a lot of times they describe, they may feel like their eyes are lagging behind their head movement or they get dizzy with quick head movements. I find that dynamic visual acuity is one of the most common abnormalities. And then Lastly, and this is a little bit different from other labs I know that are doing concussion work, but I perform some rotational chair testing if I can. I know sometimes that's difficult to get in these patients, but it's really neat. We have a lot of central versus peripheral rotational chair tests, um, like I perform VOR suppression and visual VOR, and sometimes those can give me good indication of if something's going on higher up, even if I don't know exactly where it is, um, but you can see that recover with the recovery. So if something is abnormal, let's say um, VOR suppression's abnormal, I can bring them back a month later and it's within normal limits. So it's really, really cool to track the natural physiologic recovery timeline. That's so interesting. What a what an interesting set of tests that we don't necessarily do on a day-to-day basis, even if you are a vestibular audiologist. Right. Um, you know, out of all of these different tests, you know, do you do every single one on every single patient that you see? Typically I do. Um, It depends a little bit on when their head injury occurred. So I I always say I see like two different types of patients and this may be different for everybody. One are people in the acute phase. So maybe in the first month or two after their head injury. And some of the tests are a lot more sensitive to that phase. So like convergence or anti-saccades. The other group of patients I tend to see are patients who had a head injury like a year ago, went through physical therapy, aren't getting better, and then they're like, hey, let's see if Liz can find anything else that's going on. Um, So those patients, it may be harder to track convergence abnormalities. So uh, following, you know, all of your different testing, um, where are these patients referred typically? Yeah, great question. So they can be a number of different places. Most common, physical therapy, if they aren't already in physical therapy. Um, Some other ones, optometry, depending on, I think Bogle's paper estimated like 70% or 80% of athletes reported visual issues after a head injury. So optometry is very common. Neurology and then like psychiatric services or therapy, depending on the method of the injury. You know, a lot of them are very traumatic injuries if it's not even if it is an athletic injury, but, you know, a motor vehicle accident or some sort of abuse case, you know, there can be a lot of emotions tied to it. So it's clear that concussion management requires a wide range of professionals, a whole team approach involved. So where does audiology fit in all of that? Well, clearly audiologists help in the identification of it all, of these, you know, in the initial assessment, as well as sort of monitoring the natural progression of the physiology and recovery. Absolutely. What's the biggest challenge when I'm talking with neurologists or primary care physicians, the challenge to them is 
identifying whether a concussion has occurred or not because there's really not one test that exists that says yep they've had a concussion they they depend on patient report and maybe a negative ct scan and say okay you probably had a concussion so our you know information and having age-based norms of what's an abnormal eye movement versus normal is really really helpful to them and that brings us nearly to the end of our discussion um on concussion went so fast it did. Um, we actually have a lot of great questions mm-hmm. from our Instagram, which I'm going to play a little Ask the Expert here. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the first one being, um, how do we present ourselves separately from ther- physical therapists to a uh, concussion management team? Yeah, great question. So I think the biggest difference that we have in this realm compared to physical therapists is we've got equipment that can look at eyes, record eye movement, and compare it to age-based norms. I think that's something that a lot of physical therapists do not have access to. And we can help you know, provide information for the diagnosis and tracking the recovery with physical therapists. And I always talk with PTs about, hey, I can be a help to you if you're wondering when this patient can go back to work or back to school because they make that determination. I can be the help with that and show what progress they've made. That's such a great insight into into that. Um, the second question is: Are there any different are there different codes to build than the regular vestibular workup? So currently, no, there are not these concussion specific vestibular codes. So um, you know, for me, I'm just trying to provide the best patient care I can at this point to those patients. Doesn't really take too much time to add those in. Um, I know you can bill a 92700, which is like an unlisted service or procedure for like dynamic visual acuity. It doesn't always get paid by the insurance company, but that's something to keep in mind. Okay. Um, question three. Um, so when is the ideal time to test these patients? Great question. So I like to see people, you know, within the first week after a head injury. That's not always typical. You want them to, of course, be... Uh, recovered to an extent where they are able to come in and participate in the vestibular assessments. So, um, you know, a few days, of course, is, is not a bad idea to wait. But I like to see someone as soon as we can after the head injury within the first week. And then I periodically will follow them throughout their treatment. So for like athletes who are really trying to get back to their sport quickly, I may see them once a week and monitor with their physical therapy till they are back within normal limits and have no symptoms. Excellent. Um, you've mentioned a lot of different tests today. Um, so are there any bedside tests that do you, th- you think would be helpful? Yeah, so the easiest one to incorporate in uh, with literally no equipment is the convergence, near point convergence testing. So look that up just need a popsicle stick, write an A on it. So that's the easiest one you could incorporate into your day-to-day, even if you don't see vestibular dizzy patients. Um, You can technically do like an anti-saccad screening uh, bedside, but it's a little bit harder to evaluate. So I would say, you know, doing convergence might be the best thing to incorporate in. And uh, just a couple more questions we have here. Um, Do you think audiologists have a role in the ER, such as you know, as far as like consultate to provide consults and such. That's interesting. Um, This is totally my opinion, but probably not just because 
you know, a lot of times the testing that we do may require the patient to wear video goggles and all this stuff. And, you know, when they're in the ER, they're in a very, very, very acute phase where, you know, they may not want you to even touch their head or move their head at all. So you do want them to be, you know, comfortable with a little bit of, you know, head movement and or, you know, being able to put like a bone oscillator on for like CVIMPs if you're doing bone CVIMPs, et cetera. So I don't think in the ER we would catch anything more than a few days out of the ER. Yeah, that's a really good point. And lastly, should more audiologists be doing uh, vestibular rehabilitative therapy as opposed to only doing the assessment piece? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think more audiologists would do this. I think the main challenge right now is we're not reimbursed for this service. So I think uh, that deters, definitely. I mean, realistically, it's hard hard to provide the therapy, but I definitely think, you know, it's obviously within our scope and we understand the systems well. So I think it could be something in the future that we continue to advocate for. Yep, I don't think you could have said it any better. Um, Absolutely. So with that being said, that concludes uh, the month of February. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us here on a dose of dizzy podcast. We always look forward to doing these episodes and we'll be reaching out uh, to our audience to, to get some ideas for uh, either next month or even beyond um, other, other topics we um, cover. Absolutely. And if anyone, you know, I'll try to post a concussion case on our Instagram this month. I know sometimes I'm not the best about that because I also work, um, but we'll try to post a case. And if anyone has any questions about this, send them to our Instagram and we will share responses because we've received a lot of good questions and we'll try to keep everybody apprised. Perfect. All right. We'll see everybody next month. See you in March.